my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric. And I'm Bozma St. John. And this is Back to Biz. With Katie and Boz. So, Katie, you're back from I, book writing. I'm so glad. I am. Really, really glad. Thank you for giving me a break. You held down the fort beautifully, Bose. But, um, oh. yes, I had to put the pedal to the metal and really focus on getting my book done. I'm still working on the Yahoo years, but I've made real progress. So thank you for giving me some time to focus on that. But I'm super jazzed to be here today because this is an episode we've been talking about for some time. I don't know about you, Bose, but I would hate to be an incoming college freshman right now. <laughs> Wouldn't you? True, true. And um, we're not sure that we'd want to be the university presidents either. The coronavirus has the nation's colleges and universities in financial crisis. A lot of anxiety about the upcoming fall semester for both students and parents. The next casualty of the pandemic could be college football. Families still face pricey tuition bills and are now rethinking their college plans. It has been such a nightmare. And before we introduce our guests, we should give a little preview and say we tapped the presidents of our respective alma maters. By the way, I graduated in 79. Bose, you graduated in 99. I wasn't going to mention it, right. but hey, age is just a number. <laughs> Here we are. And mine is unlisted. Um, so why don't you introduce your special guest, Bose? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, I'm very, very excited about this episode because Michael Roth, who is the current president of Wesleyan University, is joining us today. Hello. And I'm super jazzed to have the new president of the University of Virginia, Jim Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I think both of you have had such fascinating lives, and I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people who are involved with Wesleyan or UVA, how we feel really lucky to have you both in academia. Mm. I find it so interesting that you're both first-generation college students. Um, But, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how we're taught history and how history has really warped our perspective on so many events. And Jim, of course, I've been writing my own book and I just finished writing about the Unite the Right rally and the fact that for so long, people really didn't understand the Civil War or the Lost Cause narrative or what Confederate statues stood for and when they were erected and what the reasoning behind uh, them and other Confederate iconography. And gosh, you you both are so interested in education. What, What do you think about that? I mean, Do you think that that's responsible for a lot of the intolerance and narrow-minded attitudes toward 
this current reckoning we're witnessing? Well, I, I'll I'll jump in first, if Jim, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, I, I think that the um, the reckoning is due mostly to the persistence of uh, racist oppression, and that that oppression continues to um, survive uh, despite what seems to be the good intentions of many people uh, who don't consider themselves racist because of these narratives of the past that uh, have become part of uh, what we believe are, this, are settled truths. And I, I think some of the controversy we see today around history textbooks, around the 1619 Project, uh, the kind of vehemence about that is that this is historical research certainly not perfect research, but it's an intervention, a thoughtful intervention in, in American history that shakes up the, the, the stories, the histories we've been led to believe are foundational. Right. And that's what good historians do. And I think that 1619 Project is, is extraordinarily worthwhile. But I think when people have their founding stories shaken, sometimes they, are say, they say, thank you, my goodness, now I see more of the way the world is. But most of the time, they get very angry, especially if that foundational story justified their own position in the world. Even if it's not that elevated, it's more elevated than the object of their racist scorn. And so they are mm -hmm. very, can be very angry to see that, um, that those foundational stories or myths uh, questioned. Mm. Jim, what about you? What I would add to that, I, I agree with that entirely. What I would add is I do think that a lot of the sort of head scratching when someone um, uses the term structural racism, for example, is due to a lack of knowledge of history, not just around the founding, but 20th century history. I mean, the other piece of this is that there's often this assumption that, um, well, that happened 200, 300, 400 years ago. But there are so many elements to um, modern history that if you understood them, you would understand why the world looks the way it does today. And not just, not just understanding um, what happened during the Jim Crow era and the propagation of the myth of the lost cause, um, but basic things like redlining um, or how long um, it took between the time that Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954, and there were actual efforts to integrate the schools, and then how short-lived those efforts were, right? I mean, I, I spent an awful lot of time, I taught a course on, on um, law and education and spent an awful lot of time on, on history that law students and education school students just never had. I mean, yeah. the, the number of students who come up to me after a class and say, how come I've never heard of redlining? Um, or how come I've never heard of uh, Milliken versus Bradley, which was a decision that prohibited um, uh, busing across school district lines, which basically killed school integration in 1974, maybe five years after the court finally got serious about it. I mean, mm -hmm. It, it is this sense that, oh, well, these, you know, bad things happen. No, I mean, this is part of a pattern that you can see in terms of how this country has dealt with issues of race and how it's treated people of color. And a, a lack of that history, I think, helps explain a lack of empathy in some respects. Is that being, is that being fixed, though, you guys? I mean, do you think that the way kids are being taught history, I mean... 
Bose, I don't know about you, but I feel like, you know, I I was went to public school in Northern Virginia, and I feel a lot of the history that I learned was, you know, adhered to a specific narrative that didn't entertain so many of these concepts. Is that changing? You know, my daughters learned from Howard Zinn, uh, which is a very different way uh, to look at history. Do you find that that's spreading across the country for young people so we won't have this deeply entrenched misunderstanding or this idea that of American exceptionalism when it wasn't exceptional? I mean, I, I think it's changing in, in parts of the country and not so much in others. I mean, the basic fact about the U.S. education system is that there isn't one. There are, you know, 13,000 education systems because um, there are that many or a little bit more um, school districts. So in some places, um, yeah, there's a fuller telling of U.S. history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and in other places, I don't think so. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I I think that uh, uh, Jim is exactly right, that it really depends on where you go to school, what are the resources are uh, are used there. But I also want to caution us against thinking this, what we're learning now is like, we finally, now we have the truth. (laughs) This history is always being revised. And I don't think um, uh, the historical narratives we've been taught fully justify um, uh, being comfortable with injustice or a a lack of empathy. I I think what's really important is that uh, young people, whether they're in K through 12 system or in college, learn to uh, live with uh, the idea that they can make things better um, and that they can learn a variety of perspectives on how things got unacceptable now Mm. and then acquire a variety of tools to address those things in the future. What I do worry about sometimes is that people say, well, I believe this kind of story and my friends and my group, my comrades, my uh, sisters and brothers, they believe this story and we fight for these things and you guys fight for those other things. And they don't sometimes are not encouraged to actually listen to one another. So I, I think that one of the important things to do is not to let young people think now they have the truth, but to let young people learn how to conduct inquiry, to listen to other people, to discover what they might learn more about, what they what falsehoods they might no longer believe, and what other truths other people might have for them. And that's a hard thing. I mean, people like, many people like certainty, but I think you can cultivate uh, an openness to ambiguity and inquiry with young people um, so that they're more likely to listen to people who disagree with them even when they get older. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, a snapshot of what going back to campus might look like this COVID fall. That's in just a moment. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? 
Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. And today we're talking about the future of education with the presence of our alma maters, Michael Roth of Wesley University in Connecticut and Jim Ryan from the University of Virginia. Let's get back to it. I know that you both have, you know, plans for what the fall will look like, but can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the tough decisions that you're making uh, and what is influencing those decisions also? Go ahead, Michael. You can start. Thanks a lot, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, (laughs) I'm hoping to learn a few things. So it's it's it is a very challenging time. I mean, obviously, uh, we started our planning, you know, right, really once we sent kids home in mid-March, like many other schools. And it was extraordinary. Um, Ever since then, we've been trying to figure out what are the parameters for us to be able to bring students back safely in the fall? Can we can we do that successfully? And for us, the question was, we believe in in-person education. It can be complemented by online education. You can, there are great examples of hybrid things. I teach online. I'm teaching right now online, actually, all over <laughs> the world. Um, and and so, so we wanted to make sure that we could reduce the risks to our students, faculty, and staff sufficiently that, it, the, that the environment would be, I'll use this phrase, safe enough. When I wrote about safe enough spaces, I was really thinking about free speech. But now we're thinking of not a zero risk to everybody, because that there is no place in America where you can have a zero risk, but where we can practice harm reduction with cooperation from our students, faculty and staff, and um, and that we will we will respond to the the data that we get from the uh, public health authorities uh, and the government. And was saying if we did not feel that we could conduct in-person classes safely, we wouldn't conduct them. Um, and so what we're doing is creating environments where everyone will be six feet apart, where everyone in public will wear masks, where uh, there'll be lots of uh, uh, hygiene practice, and you know, lots of things that just are common sense, right? The, the question everyone asks, and they should ask, and I ask myself this all hours of the day and night, is will the students cooperate? And, you know, we've all seen the pictures of young people partying on the beach or in a bar, and, and, and we, all, we all know what college students like to do. Uh, what we're trying to do, and I would imagine this is true of many schools, is to appeal not to our students' desire to obey authority, because there is none, <laughs> no <laughs> desire for that, but to their spirit of community, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and... We uh, are um, working with the student leaders to um, create an environment where if, if, if Bose forgets her mask, somebody says, Here, here's a mask, put a mask on. Just like, you know, when I was a student at Wesleyan, if somebody lit up a cigarette in the classroom, and no problem, the teacher might bum one from you. Today, <laughs> if someone lit up a cigarette in the dining hall, another student would come over and say, hey, put that out. You know, that they would intervene with one another to create an environment 
that's safe. In our case, we are not just depending on that. We're testing everybody twice a week. Um, we have taken over a hotel. So if we need to isolate people, we can isolate them. We can get and still have them in school. Uh, and so we're doing all kinds of things. So when there are positive cases, we take them out of a chain of transmission. And so we don't have a, uh, an explosion of cases. We'll have isolated cases, we hope, then we can then quarantine and get people back into the system. Um, and all of that depends on very good testing, very good supportive isolation and contact tracing, and then the community spirit of the students, faculty, and staff. Jim, how it sounds to me like UVA is kind of following a similar path as Wesleyan, but you know, as I look at UVA has 16,777 undergraduate students, Wesleyan has 3,009. I'm not sure if those are exactly correct numbers, but you get the picture. So Jim, tell us about your plans. Yeah, we've been thinking about, well, why bring students back? Uh, and, you know, our mission is, as a research university, is to educate our students um, conduct research, and we have a health center and provide medical care. All of those things are better done in person. So we, from the very beginning, meaning in March, after we asked students to, um, to return home, started thinking about, okay, how can we do this in a way that's reasonably safe to students, faculty, staff, and the broader community? Because Charlottesville is sort of a classic college town. Um, and that's what we've been working on ever since. So we have identified a number of criteria that we need to meet in order to open. Our plan is to have students back at the end of August um, and following a lot of the same protocols that Michael is talking about with respect to um, testing and social distancing um, and also involving student leaders and helping us figure out how to create a norm around um, uh, or a campaign uh, around shared norms and appealing, as Michael says, um, both to the sense of community, but also to the sense that this is not necessarily about protecting yourself. It's about protecting others um, around you. That all said, um, we're also keeping a close eye on the progression of the virus. Um, and the reality is that um, things look worse today than they did in mid-June when we announced our plan. And, and when we announced our plan, we said, obviously all of this is contingent on where we are at the end of August. Um, and right now the trends nationally um, and in Virginia and locally are not going in the direction that we would like to see. Um, so we're keeping a close eye on that. And again, going back to these gating criteria and if they're not met, we're not gonna be able to um, invite uh, students back we also have a number of criteria for what we would do to ramp down or shut down. And one of them is going to be around student behavior. So I think we're asking all students to um, agree to abide by these protocols. Um, but we know there will be some that don't comply and they'll be subject to um, disciplinary proceedings. But if it gets to the point where there's an awful lot of noncompliance, we need to take that into account in terms of whether we can actually continue with the continue with the semester. And we need to let students know that that's actually going to be a factor in whether we have to ask students to return home. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, is it time to reinvent the entire higher education system? 
The university presidents answer that and more in just a moment. You're listening to Back to Biz with Katie and Bose, and we're talking about the future of higher education with UVA President Jim Ryan and Wesleyan University President Michael Roth. You know, I had, of course, the fortunate uh, benefit of going away to college, right? I was in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is where home was, went to Wesleyan in Connecticut. Um, and the experience of college was, of course, about the education, uh, but so much more too, right? The community, the people I was around, the interactions I had all over. And it, it felt like that all encapsulated the value, right, to me of what the college experience was like. So, you know, even in light of that, thinking about what the difference is for these students who are going to come back, potentially come back, maybe not come back after Thanksgiving or, you know, depending mm-hmm. on your plan, um, that Zoom classes maybe don't feel like enough. If I'm not on campus, if I'm not getting all the extra things that come with what uh, the cost of college looks like, is it is it even worth it? I mean, we're, we are talking about a luxury also, right? I mean, even for Michael at Wesleyan, right? I think it, at this point, tuition is about $75,000, $76,000 a year, with, right? Uh, with room and board, yeah. With room and board. And Jim, wow. I think it's... It's just about uh, seventeen or eighteen thousand, right? If you're if you're in state, um, it's just for tuition, yeah. Just for tuition, yeah. And for out of state, we should add, Jim. It's what forty nine thousand, about fifty or so. Yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. So I mean, these so that's are a lot these of are, money. These are luxury. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a big luxury. Um, what do you think about that? What about the response to students or parents who feel like you know the virtual version perhaps doesn't match? the uh, sticker price of well, the Well, it's an interesting. In our, in our case, you know, almost half of the students are on significant financial aid and now the average grant, no loans for over $40,000 per student. So, um, so I, I, you know, the, 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 the people who can't afford to pay by the formulas that the government provides, um, uh, they don't pay. And so, you know, there's a significant percentage of students who don't pay anything uh, for room and board or tuition. What strikes me, and I must say I'm, I'm surprised by this, I don't know if Jim has the same experience, um, we expected more students actually to say, in these conditions, I'm not coming back to campus. Um, but in fact, we have, uh, <laughs> we have more students than we expected who are, who are so eager to be together even if they have to wear a mask, even if they have to um, be at some distance from each other, um, that they, 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 they want to be on campus. They want to f- feel connected to people their age who are studying. And I think we've all had experiences like this. We would say in the abstract, I would never want to do that. I would never do that. But when, you, when your choice is sitting, I'm in my basement talking to you. <laughs> my choice is I'll see you outside. We can talk at a distance. We can go for a walk. We can... We could have a meal at some distance. That's actually becomes very, very precious. And the proof is our students are voting with their feet. They really want to come back to campus. We're seeing the same thing. Um, it will be different. I mean, and we, we've been saying this over and again, and now, I mean, it's obvious. Um, the, the fall semester is not gonna look much like 
a normal semester. Um, but I think students are eager to see each other. And as Michael says, um, be in each other's company. Um, and even if it's under different conditions, there's something incredibly powerful about that. Mm -hmm. How big a financial hit is this going to be for both of you? You know, um, international students who often pay full freight are going to have problems coming to school. I think you haven't gotten much in federal support, uh, without getting too much into the weeds. Um, you know, how tough is this going to be for your respective institutions? And might this be a time to recalibrate how we think about higher education with this, you know, so many kids drowning in student debt. And the, I mean, honestly, uh, Michael, $75,000, I know you were saying a lot of people are on financial aid, but it just seems insane to me. And by the way, obviously it's all schools. I mean, so many schools that aren't, that are private and even public universities. And you look at the price of kindergarten these days and these private schools in New York City, it is mm -hmm. insane. And it keeps going up and up and up. So I guess my question is two parts. How, how big a challenge is this going to be for your solvency? And is it time to rethink how college works? Michael, go in 30 seconds. Just kidding. <laughs> so, so, so the, 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 um, uh, the hit on the uh, economically is is really significant, and it it it's uh, you know if you have dorms um, and you and you don't rent them out to anyone, let's say you're not opening, that's you still have all the costs associated with having your dorms, but you you don't have any uh, revenue associated. So that that that's a very significant hit. Um, we have always been very conservative in our budgeting. Uh, everybody t is in a pay freeze at Wesleyan. I took a big pay cut. Uh, other people uh, cut their salaries. You know, we're figuring out how to um, preserve jobs um, while at the same time um, trimming all um, extra budgets. Uh, is it time to rethink? People have been rethinking the, um, the uh, higher education finances for a, a long time. The fact is, is I think Cappy Hill once, she was president of Vassar and an economist of education. She said, as long as, as long as Katie comes along and says, I'm willing to spend whatever it takes for my daughter or my niece to get the very best education, as long as people say that in America and they say it every day, the price will keep going up. Um, and we can deliver at scale an online education that's okay. Um, and, but it's, but people, if, if you want, so, so are we giving online classes at Wesley and same, I'm sure at UVA right now, it's not any cheaper to give it online. You're still paying the faculty. You're doing small classes. You're having intense discussions. Um, uh, the introduction of technology into higher education has famously not reduced the, the cost of producing the educational experience. It's more like going to the dentist. It's not less expensive because there's more technology. It's just a lot better. And I think the experience for our students now, the wraparound experience that our students expect from first-rate athletics to first-rate psychotherapy, um, great classes combined with hundreds of clubs, this kind of full spa experience is what people are demanding to pay for. And half of our students can't pay. So we have to raise money to support their financial aid. 
It, it is a um, model under great duress, but I think it also is a model that produces extraordinary experiences for undergraduates, extraordinary research, and great technological development. So I don't think it's going to disappear, even if it's under duress. Right. What about you, Jim? Do you? I mean, I, I'm sure you've been asking yourself yourself a lot of these questions. Endowments are down, right? And um, you know, it's a really, really challenging time. Yeah, I mean, it'll be <clears throat> challenging for us um, financially, for the reasons that Michael pointed out. Um, we're also um, facing a loss of revenue in athletics as well, in football in particular. Um, and then assuming that the season continues, which is what the plan is now, um, stadiums won't be um, won't be nearly full. Um, but um, you know, we'll we'll weather that part of it. The piece of it that I worry the most about is the impact on our employees um, and the financial hit that. Um, that that they might be facing, and so like Michael, you know, we're trying to figure out how we can make sure um, to preserve as much job continuity as we can. That's I mean, there's a narrative out there that schools are making these decisions based on finances, and some of them may have to because it's an existential crisis. But for us, you know, this is just one of the risks that we think about is the risk to our employees um, if students are not are not back. Um, in terms of the cost, you know, I think what this um, whole episode is going to cause people to do, and it's a good thing to do, is to really um, examine whether they're getting good value for the increasingly large investment that they're making, right? So there are a lot of top schools like Wesleyan um, and UVA um, have generous financial aid policies. We're one of only two public universities in the country that guarantees to meet um, all financial need. Um, that's an expensive model. But I think for some schools, um, you know, there will be an increasing assessment that it is actually not worth it. Um, and I think this whole episode is going to accelerate the trend of some schools um, no longer existing because the value proposition isn't there. And the value proposition, to go back to something Bose was saying, is, 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 beyond, is the experience beyond just the classes. It's the experience of what happens when you're on campus with other students. Um, and if that experience is not rich enough, is not valuable enough, why not take classes online? Yeah. Right? You would mm -hmm. be, it would be more convenient and it would be cheaper for you to do so if you could live at home um, and just take classes online. I was talking to someone who said, uh, that vocational, almost a vocational type education was going to be emphasized more because on top of the pandemic, now you have, you know, this very, very tough economy that college graduates are going into. And as a liberal arts major myself, an American studies major at UVA, I just, I wonder, both of you, if, if you're going to have to start teaching classes uh, where skills will be paramount. So when people graduate, they can actually really get a, a job. Um, is, that, is that a crazy idea or is, do you agree with that, Michael? I, I don't, I, do, I think the same things were said in the Great Recession, um, that schools were gonna disappear and that liberal arts would disappear and that now we'd have micro degrees and badges. And there's some of that to be sure. And, mo the, you know, great proportion of the student debt is actually 
for schools that claim to teach school uh, skills um, and, and just mm-hmm. are predatory lenders. Um, so I, I don't think the way to prepare students for successful life after college is to be m- increasingly narrow because the, the economy is changing so rapidly that you need to be able to look, continue to learn. And we have to show students how they can use what they learn uh, in different kinds of settings, not just in the classroom, in real world settings. I do think that the, the, pr- the pressure on some schools to change their calendars because of the pandemic um, it can lead to even more substantial changes. Uh, I, I don't think there's any reason for students to go to school for eight semesters. I think that's just a convention that we've had for a long time, but there's no educational reason for it. We have post hoc justifications. But um, the, the best way we found at Westlingham to reduce the price of education is to compress it into three years instead of four. Same number of courses. You have less of that experience but you actually pay 20% less uh, uh, off the top. And I think there are a lot, there'd be more experiments like that where students may go to community college for two years and then go to a, one, a school for one year or um, finding ways to give people this experience. It's so empowering economically as well as culturally, but they don't perhaps need to have that for eight semesters spread over f- four years. Yeah. Well, there is so much changing in the world. And what do you think about what students are thinking right now about, you know, the racial unrest that is happening in our country? Have you heard from them, you know, both for you and and Jim? And what are their thoughts and how are you incorporating that into some of what you're thinking for the future? Jim, do you want to go first on this one? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, I've been really impressed by how engaged our students are, um, both at, at the um, sort of across the country with respect to protests, but also focusing on UVA. Um, and as I was saying earlier um, about um, what happened after the Unite the Right rally, I think you're seeing the same thing again, which is that there's an opportunity um, for change and students are um, helping drive that. And so we've put together a small racial equity task force to go through the various petitions, suggestions, and demands that um, have been made to UVA on behalf of mostly students, but sometimes faculty, staff, and alumni over the last 20 to 25 years, um, and come forward with a set of concrete and prioritized recommendations for what UVA can do in this moment. And it does feel like an opportunity to have a reckoning over issues of race that have been long-standing and only sporadically attended to. Mm-hmm. So at Wesleyan, um, we've had similar kinds of conversations to what Jim just described. We also started uh, in the late fall, some, uh, something called Engage 2020, where along with almost 300 other schools in the country are um, trying to stimulate participation in the electoral system. And I think our students should be paying attention to their towns, to their regions, to their states, and to the federal government. And so it's not my business to tell them how to engage, but it is my business to try to find ways for them to be engaged. And then when the pandemic hit, I thought, oh, all these plans for them going door to door, getting petitions, I had all gone out the window. But of course, with the Black Lives Matter protest, clearly the energy and creativity of young people to demand change at, the, at their town level at their state, at the federal government level, that this is, this is a moment that is so crucial for the United States, I, I believe. 
And so I am trying as best I can to facilitate their involvement because I think we are desperate for their energy and creativity um, at this moment in, in, in the nation's history. Jim Ryan and Michael Roth, it's been a real pleasure talking to both of you. And I, I, I just want to say good luck this fall. Uh, we'll be thinking about you. you guys and pulling for you and hoping that that things things aren't as hard as they seem right now and that it all works out and that and that this sense of community will prevail mm-hmm. amen well, to that yes. amen yes. Thank you. you've been listening to michael roth president of wesleyan university and jim ryan president of the university of virginia And that does it for this week's episode of Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. We've talked to so many interesting people. And if you haven't been able to listen to all of them, go on and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And as always, you can keep up with me and Bose beyond the podcast by finding and following us on our social media channels. And make sure you subscribe to the next Question Podcast feed too. Until we meet again, I'm Katie Couric. And I'm Bozma St. John. And this is Back to Biz with Katie and Boz. Back to Biz with Katie and Boz is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Bozma St. John, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. The associate producers are Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Special thanks to Adriana Fazio. For more information about today's episode, go to katiekirk.com. You can also follow Katie Kirk and Bozema St. John on Twitter and Instagram. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.